Olympic City of Tulare, California. Amen. And we want them to take their 100% liberty and the Holy Ghost uh, with them and here. And how are we just going to preach with them and get behind them in Jesus' name? Would you give Brother Sledge a great big Abundant Life Center welcome as he comes and blesses us in Jesus' name. Well, praise the Lord. And everybody sit down, except for my wife. She has to come up here and start things. Is that all right? My mom always taught me ladies first, so I'm going to let you, I guarantee you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Pastor Grogan. Thank you, all of you. It is such an honor to get to be here. It is always a privilege to be in church. Now, you understand when I say that, I don't mean in a building because there is no building that's a church. God doesn't inhabit buildings. He inhabits the praises of His people. We are the church. Amen? Amen? And we come to the building to get equipped to be the church when we go out there because that's where we really shine is when we're out being the church, when we're out with our neighbors and our friends and on the streets. Amen? Let me give my little 30-second commercial so we can get that done and over with. Um, <laughs> my mother is LaJoyce Martin. That don't mean a lot probably to many of you, but uh, she is an apostolic author, and she has donated some books, and we have them on the back for sale. And really, you're, if you buy them, you get really great reading material, but for us, that's some more miles closer to home because home for us is Berlin, Germany, and uh, out here we're probably... 7,000 miles from home and uh, and we've got to buy plane tickets and to buy plane tickets we've got to have money and so we're buying miles to get back home anything you can do to help us we appreciate it and God will bless you because you never make an investment in the kingdom of God that's, that is a useless or worthless or a failed investment he always pays his debts amen amen Berlin is a funny place. Uh, it's the atheist capital of Europe. And uh, so we have a different dynamic with working with people. And, and for us who, who are raised with the consciousness of God, knowing that there is forgiveness of sins is a, is a massive revelation and a beautiful privilege. But when we go to Germany, people don't believe there is a God. They don't believe... The Bible is anything but a man-made book. They don't believe there is eternity. And so, if there's no consequences and there's no God, there's no sin. So, the moral foundations we understand, basic things, not killing or lying or stealing or committing adultery, they don't understand that those are sin because they don't know there is sin. So, we come to them with the understanding that if you don't have eternal life, you don't have hope. And, and evolution has, ha, has all, of its, all of its proponents over there, but they have no hope. Because if all we do is live and die, then, then what is there? And so we come and teach hope. Because you see... We don't, we don't have to teach rules. We teach relationship. We teach that the love of Christ constrains us. And Jesus keeps me. And I'm so glad. You know, there are people, there are crazy people out there. 
crazy people who think that when we live for God, we're deprived, that we're missing out on life. I don't know what, well, I do know what they're talking about because there are some things I'm deprived of. I, I, am, I am deprived of a bad reputation and I'm deprived of a lot of shame and a lot of bad choices. I, I'm, I'm, I'm deprived of a lot of, a lot of negative consequences and, oh, I'm deprived of a lot of things. And I'm just as happy about it. I'm so glad I'm serving Jesus. Amen. Amen. And Jesus said, and we, we think so often of the blood of Jesus as, as solely perhaps a cleanser from sin. But Jesus said when he, when he was at the Last Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. There is relationship. There is power. There is understanding. There is direction. Everything we need is in the name and the blood of Jesus. And I'm so glad that I have a light. And see, my name doesn't mean anything because my name can't save anybody. And my name can't heal anybody, but I can go and I can talk about Jesus. We do this everywhere. We love to talk about Jesus. Now, in Germany, we don't have beautiful buildings like this to meet in. We rent rooms by the hour to have church. So, since we can't gather at any given time, we have to be in our schedule for service, we go have church wherever we can. So we talk to people in the laundromat. I tell you, I love laundromats because the people can't get away. They have to wait for their clothes to get done. And while they're there, they can get a Bible study while they're waiting. So, you know, we just go out and we take Jesus everywhere we can because Jesus is Lord everywhere. And this is wonderful because it gives us the opportunity then to make Jesus real and alive everywhere we go. And this is what I know. This gospel is not cutting anybody out. Jesus opened his arms and he said, whosoever will. There's nobody out there. And, and we, we run into all kinds of crazy people out there. I tell you, it's a crazy world out there. But Jesus', is, Jesus blood reaches every person who's willing to come for it. And we have, we've had backsliders come in. We had a young man just over Christmas. We were able to go back for Christmas holidays. And a young man who was raised in church but had never received the Holy Ghost. And he got in. He received the Holy Ghost when we were there over Christmas. God's reaching backsliders. God's reaching first-time visitors. God's reaching people everywhere. And there's one thing that makes the difference, and it's not me and it's not you. It's that there was a cross one day, and Jesus said, He said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. And this spake He concerning the cross. He said, If once I get on the cross, then the door's open. Everybody can come. So I'm going to sing a song, and this is an old, old song. I don't know these new songs. I'm, I'm not that... I'm not that technologically advanced, but uh, so so I'm going to sing something. If you know it, please join in.
love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. What a great God we serve, amen. What a great God we serve. He loves us so much, and we don't love him enough. Everybody said amen. I love him, I love him, I love him. If you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. Pastor, is it okay if I get down here? These guys down here look like they need to be harassed a little bit. You know, the Bible says in three places, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. So like if y'all don't respond, you know, I might have to obey the Bible. Can I get amen out of that? This one dude's like, okay, maybe I'm in the wrong place. God is so good to us, and he does so many special things for us. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is the world that you're in, the world that I'm in, and why what we have in the church is better than anything you're going to find outside. You got my verse up there? Everybody see that? But that which bears thorns and briars, everybody say that word? It's rejected. But that which bears thorns and briars is, and it is nigh unto whose end is to be. How would you like to have a youth camp like that? That's your next youth camp, the rejected, cursed, and burned camp. Sound all right? We want to raise money to go to that one, don't we? We raise money, we go wash cars, we'll go sell peanut brittle, whatever we have to do to make sure we go to the rejected, cursed, and burned camp, right? This makes no sense, right? We don't want this. We want something better than this, right? We want something cleaner than this. We want something that's not as harsh as that, right? And in, but this verse that we have here, this verse that we're looking at right here, that which bears thorns. Folks, this is the world you live in. Every day you get out of bed, this is where you're at. When you go to the store, this is where you buy groceries. This is where you buy clothes. This is, this is where your friends meet. This is where you have Bible studies. And like it or not, this building you call church is in this world. This rejected, cursed, and burned world. What a wretched thing to think that we're in a rejected curse. See, I'm a firm believer in, in global warming. I really am. I honestly believe it's happening. I just don't think it's because you're driving a Dodge pickup. Amen. I think it's because the Bible's right. When the Bible says the elements will melt with the fervent heat and the world of this world, the world and the works of this world are going to be burned up, I think that's correct. But it's a godly deal. It's not a man-made deal. Science can't do this. God can do this. Amen. You see, the world that produces science is the world that comes out of this rejected, cursed, and burned world. And I'm going to talk to you about that world for just a little bit, okay? That be all right? Everybody good? Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for your mercy and truth. God, we ask you to move in our hearts and our souls and help us give you praise and honor today. Help us understand your word. Help us grow in your knowledge and help us be open to your guidance in everything we do in Jesus' holy name. Everybody said amen. amen. You see, when God created Adam, he created him in the, in the garden. Everybody knows the story. He creates him out of the dust of the ground, right? Y'all remember this story? He forms him out of the dust of the ground. It's the, you understand that's the only thing that God put any effort into. You go back to the first day of creation, let there be light. God said and it was so. Then he separated the waters. God said and it was so. 
There was no effort in that. He just spoke it and it was done. Day three, he grows all the trees and all the grass and all the flowers and God said and it was so. Day three was just an it said and it so kind of deal. Day four, he flings all the stars into space. The Bible says with his finger, he flung them out there. Now, if you take the universe and the hundreds of billions of, of stars and galaxies that are out there, God did not put any effort into that. He flung them out there and they just went where they were. Do you understand that? And just so you understand the God of creation, when God created the sun and the moon and the stars, he didn't have to go down to stars or us and buy five extra galaxies because he forgot to put stuff in section B. All right, you understand what I'm saying? He didn't have a delivery man bring stuff out to him. He didn't have to have a, a, a conference with a committee, get together and talk about whether or not we can build it over here, whether drainage ought to be and how we ought to run electricity. That's not what he had to do. He just spoke it and it was there. That's the kind of God we're talking about. We're not talking about an ineffectual God. We're not talking about a scientific God who, who can't do anything outside of the laws of physics. We're not talking about a God who's restricted by time and space. We're not talking about a God who's restricted by gravity or, or, or restricted by airspace or whatever. We're talking about a God who's outside of all of that, bigger than all of that, but he created all of it just with a spoken word, man. God said, and it was so, day five, man. That was the cool day. Day five of creation is really cool. That's when all the birds start flying out of the ocean. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be standing out here on the edge of the, of the ocean out here looking out at the Pacific? The light had just come on. See, on day four, the sunlight comes on, and you're standing there checking out. Oh, cool, man. We got grass. We got trees. We got flowers. Got all kinds of stuff. We can water coming in, waves and flowing and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, all these birds start flying out of the water. Penguins. Uh, con, whatever you call them, buzzards and turkeys and everything else just suddenly comes out of the water. You know, what, what, we have to, what we have to understand is God wants us as a church to live in the realm of the miraculous. We, God never intended for the church to be mundane. God never intended for the church to be commonplace. God never intended for the church to be a place where you could come and sit, hear a good sermon, and walk out feeling better, but nothing's going on. That is not what church is about. That's never what God intended it to be. Where that comes from, that attitude, we come in, we sit, we listen, we, we celebrate, we're glad God did it, we're glad the preacher preached it, we're glad whatever's going on, we're glad of all that kind of stuff, but we're gonna go on about our business, we're gonna eat our lunch, and we're gonna go watch our television show or football game or whatever it is you happen to do in the afternoon, whatever it is you put out there, that's just gonna be our life. God never intended for that to be the way we live. God intended for church, what we call church right here, what's happening inside this building. God intended for us to come in here and get equipment for us to go out there and literally turn the world upside down. The apostles were never content with just church. The apostles were never satisfied unless the power of God was moving in such a way that it was literally stirring up the whole city. Now, I know it brought a lot of problems in, but what do you think the, the message, look, folks, we're, oh, you gotta put my verse back up here. Everybody can see me. They know what I look like. Okay. This is what people are used to. When you go to Walmart, this is what they're used to. When you go to the grocery store, that's what they're used to. When you're at the hospital, they are used to this. This is all they know. And but God is wanting us to be outside of what the world knows. We know something that's different than they know. All right? We know something that's different than what just religion knows. 
There's a lot of religion out here. There's a lot of Christianity out here. There's a lot of other philosophies out here. And that's fine. The world's full of all kinds of stuff. But there is only one church. And that one church is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ. We are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, and he expects us to be something greater than this world has ever imagined. Day five, we got birds flying out of the air. Day six, all these animals start showing up out of the dirt. I mean, can you imagine that? You're just standing there one day. You're just minding your own business, checking out all these birds that are flying over, and all of a sudden, ground rebels a little bit, and here's a rhinoceros standing beside you. That would be pretty cool. As long as you know wasn't in a bad mood when he came out of the ground, it'd be all right, you know. And so, day six, God creates Adam, forms him out of the dust of the ground. It's the only time during creation that God slowed down. He formed man to make him exactly what he wanted him to be. He shaped him, designed him, planned him. It's the only thing that he said, let us make man in our own image. It's the only thing that he had a preset plan on what he was going to do. Everything else he spoke and it was there. But when it came to Adam, we're going to take some time on this. This is how important you are. This is how seriously important you are to God. He forms him out of the dust of the ground and then he does something that he had not done to any other part of creation. He breathed in him. He took his own life force and put it in that pile of dirt and that pile of dirt became a living soul. He, he, he separated mankind from every other part of creation. The angels do not have the breath of God in them. Dogs do not have the breath of God in them. The rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses do not have the breath of God in them. Mankind has the breath of God in them. We are that much different. Contrary to what the evolutionist tries to teach you, that you're the descendant of a monkey, which is a blatant lie. I'm not the descendant of a monkey, and neither are you. I've got something better than that. I've got a God who cares about me so much, he designed me in my mother's womb. What you're looking at is a messed up pile of human chromosomes, but what God sees is a design that he specifically made for a specific purpose, and that purpose cannot be accomplished outside of his will. Everybody said amen. So Adam stands up, and he's checking things out, and he's looking the world over, and everything's going cool. God comes up to him one day and says, Adam, I got a job for you. Adam says, okay, so what is it, boss? And the Lord says, uh, tell me what that thing is right there. And so Adam looks over. Here's this long, drawn-out, tall-looking thing. Got brown spots all over him. Legs are longer on the front than they are on the back. Short tail horns sticking out of the top of him. And Adam looks at that thing going by and says, you know, Lord, that kind of looks like a giraffe. And God says, okay, that's what we're going to call it. What about that next thing? Here comes this big, gigantic thing. Got big ears, teeth sticking out of the front of its head and a funny-looking nose. He said, well, that looks like an elephant. Said, okay, that's what we're going to call it. And see, Adam named every one of the animals, right? Giraffe, elephant, hippopotamus, lions, bears, tigers, cats, dogs, cows, horses, all three-toed sloth, everything went by. He named every bit of it, right? And as he names all that, and, and you got to picture this in your mind. you got to understand, we got to get to this day. We're trying to get to this day, and I'm trying to explain to you where this day comes from. So here's Adam, and he's watching that three-toed sloth as it oozes across the ground, 
because it's the slow, you know what, it was the last one through the line because it's, it's so slow, it's the last one he named. If it's oozing over towards a tree and as he's watching that, God catches him not looking and God whacks him in the back of the head, wham, knocks him out colder than a cucumber. He's laying there on the ground. God reaches in, pulls rib out him, sews it up, leaves him laying there in the dark, mind you. God does a lot of things while you don't know what's going on. He walks right back over. Do you remember day, day three? Do you remember what day three of creation was? Day one of creation is when, this is the process of discipleship, okay? The, the, the seven days of creation are the process of discipleship. Day one, we're separated from darkness and brought into marvelous light. We are separated from our sinful nature. Everybody understand that? We're separated from sin and brought into the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the light and we enter into that light, amen? That's day one of creation. Day two of creation is he separates water from water. Well, what does that have to do with us? God separates you from your culture. He takes you out of your culture and puts you in a heavenly culture because he doesn't want you staying in your culture. Our natural cultures, only two cultures on the planet, folks, the sin culture and the God culture. And God doesn't want us being in the sin culture. He wants us separated from it. <laughs> Separation are the first two days of creation. It's the first two parts of discipleship. You're separated from sin and you're separated from your culture. But on day three, God begins to grow all this stuff. All these trees and plants and flowers and all these things growing out of the ground, but there's no sunlight. If you were standing there that day, you would not have seen anything. You may have heard something. You may have felt a vine crawl up your leg and wrap around your knee bone, but you wouldn't have known what it was because you couldn't have seen it. There's no light. But on day four, day four, God said, put the sun, the moon, and the stars out there. And all of a sudden, whammo, there's revelation. You see, God does things in your life when it's totally in the dark and you don't realize what's going on. See, day three of creation is when God is doing things in the new convert that the new convert doesn't understand and doesn't know. They can't see the process. Pastor's seeing it. Some other people are seeing it. We keep telling them, God's doing great. I see God doing it, but I can't see it, Pastor. I don't understand. It doesn't matter. You stay faithful to church. You keep reading your Bible. You keep praying, and God's working this out. And someday, all of a sudden, on day four, wham, revelation, and you look back, wow, I didn't know God was doing that. My wife and I have talked about it a lot of times. We've been 20, it took us 22 years to get to Germany. 22 years. We got married and we were doing our best to live for God. And I knew the Lord had called me into the ministry and I, I didn't get the Holy Ghost until I was 30 years old. I wasn't baptized until I was 30. And, and, and so we were, or 29, I guess I was 29 years old when all this happened. And, and so I got into this kind of late, but I knew when I got into it that I was not just going to be a pew warmer. That, that's, that's West Texas cowboy lingo for what I wasn't just going to come to church and sit. That there was going to be some activity in my life and I was going to be doing some stuff and I figured very early on if this message is good enough to save me it's good enough to save other people and I need to tell them about it. Somebody said amen. We need to be vocal about what we believe folks. We need to tell people about our salvation folks. You need, to, you need to be an open testimony. You need to be talking to people about what God has done in your life. Jesus is not a silent God. And his body is not supposed to be silent. We are supposed to be very vocal about what we believe. I saw an interview with a Muslim man one time. That Muslim man, he made the comment. He said, he, in fact, he used to be Muslim. He's now a Christian. I don't know what brand of Christianity. It doesn't matter. But he left Islam and he came to Christianity. 
And he said it was a lot of years getting this process done. He said the reason it took me so long to get here is because Christians don't talk about what they believe. He said Muslims, he said there's only two things Muslims do. He said we talk about politics and we talk about religion. That's all we talk about. He said and Christians come along and you want to tell us your way is right but you won't explain it. He said, if you won't tell a Muslim what you believe and what you believe is right, if you think this is the only way you can go to heaven, and I believe that, anybody in here with me? I believe there's only one Lord, there's only one faith, and there's only one baptism, amen? I believe there's only one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. Can I get an amen out of that? I believe his name is Jesus. I believe he died. I believe he was buried. And I believe he rose again so that I can have eternal life. I believe that through Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And this Muslim man said, if you believe that, why don't you tell me that? Because if you don't tell me that, I think you don't really believe it. So we need to be more vocal. We need to talk to everybody. Well, what if they reject us? They're not rejecting you, folks. They're rejecting Jesus. Stop taking it personal. God created you out of the dust of the ground because he had a purpose for you. But something wrecked that, right? We got to get back to this. We got Eve over here, right? We have Adam laid out colder in the cucumber. And I've been walking over the top of this poor guy. He's going to have to wake up in a minute, all right? Then we got Eve over here. God comes over here and poof, here's a woman standing there, right? There's Eve. Now, Adam don't know what's going on. Adam did not know what God was doing. And I got news for you. God didn't ask for his opinion. After he got through naming all the animals that went by in that three-toed sloth easing his way towards that tree, God did not look at him and say, Adam, you know, it's not good. And, and, and the fact is, the Bible says in every day of creation, God said and it was so, and God saw that it was good. But when he created Adam, the first thing he said, well, it ain't good. It's not good that man should dwell alone. And so he created Eve. And when he walks back over here, Adam's laying out colder than a cucumber because Adam, God did not ask for his opinion, folks. Just so you understand, God does not need your opinion. He doesn't need my opinion. He doesn't need me to tell you what sin is. He's already defined that. He doesn't need me to come up with a different religious philosophy because I'm not real comfortable with this apostolic way of doing things. Pastor's too hard and that bishop, man, he's just, I don't know what to think about him. And, and, and that's the kind of attitude we have that God doesn't need that from you. What God needs from you is submission to what he said is right. And when we're submitted to what he said is right, it doesn't matter what somebody says. It doesn't matter how they act. It doesn't matter what pastor preaches from this pulpit. When it comes out and it's the word of God, bless God, I'm gonna line up to it. That's the way I'm gonna live. And so God walks back over here to Adam. He's out cold in the cucumber and he kicks him in the shin, but wham, he said, get up, boy. Adam stands up. He's like, whoa, Lord, I don't know what just. Now, Lord, Lord, that is not a hippopotamus. Lord, that's, that's like the best. And then the first prophetic statement, the first prophetic statement ever uttered by a human being before Adam ate the fruit, before sin came into being, Adam opens his mouth and says, that's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they too shall become one flesh. And Paul the apostle said, I speak a great mystery and it's concerning Christ and the church. That statement that Adam made was concerning Christ and the church. He left his home, came to his bride, and he has no intention of separating from his bride. 
We are the bride of Christ. Why do you think Jesus lives inside of us? We are cloven together. And so Adam, man, he's, he's like, woo, celebrating. And he goes over to his wife, and the first thing he says to her, he says, now, honey, there's two trees in the middle of this garden. One of those trees is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Honey, whatever you do, don't touch and don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why, honey? Because when you do, you're going to die. Well, what does that mean? I have no idea. You know, sometimes your pastor doesn't know. Sometimes your pastor doesn't know why, but he knows what. And there are times when you come to him and, Pastor, what do you think about so-and-so? And he says, I don't feel good about this. And you can ask him why all you want to. He's not going to know why. He just knows something's not correct. And he's going to tell you, I don't think that's a good idea. You would do well to walk away from it, no matter how much you love it. Everybody said Amen. I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm just telling you what happens here when Adam is talking to his wife. Because one day his wife decided to go shopping. She went on a shopping spree. She went down to the local flea market. And as she's walking through the flea market, just checking things out, you know, there's some glassware and there's some pans and there's some this stuff to hang on the walls and all these other things, different kinds of fruit. And Lord of mercy, y'all live in the fruit basket of the world out here. And she's walking around looking at the carrots and she's looking at the cucumbers and she's looking at the avocados and, and the peaches and oranges and whatever else happens to be around there. And all of a sudden she meets this dude. And this dude that she meets can sell her something better than she knows how to buy it. Did you hear me? Satan can sell you sin better than you know how to buy things. Because I know this for a fact. I'm, I'm just, are there any women in this place? Any women in here? Are there any men in the church? Any men in the church? I'm just curious. How many of you, how many of you guys have six-pack abs like mine? How many of you feel like in your brain that if you bought one more piece of exercise equipment in 10 days, you would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> How many of you have exercise equipment at home you bought for that purpose and now you're hanging clothes on it? Because somebody convinced you that if you would buy this thing, it would change your life. And it might have been a salesperson. It might have been a magazine cover. It might have been a television ad. It might have been something you saw on YouTube. I don't know. But whatever the case, you convinced yourself that if I buy it, it's gonna make my life better. It's in us, folks. Before Eve ate the fruit, before Adam ate the fruit, before sin ever entered mankind, God said in Romans chapter eight, he has created us subject to vanity. He created the creature subject to vanity. Not willingly, but by reason he created the same subject to hope. God put something on the inside of Adam and Eve that would make them literally want something that is not right so that they would learn to put their hope in Jesus. And Eve is standing there and this salesman comes up there and says, how are you doing today, lady? She's doing fine. What are you looking for? I'm just checking and just browsing. He says, well, look, we've got this new diet, this new diet food. In fact, it's just one piece of fruit. If you will take this diet food, it will, it will change your life. And she looked at that piece of fruit and she said, now wait a minute, my husband done told me that God said we ain't supposed to touch that or eat it. He said, well, why not? 
Well, in the day we do, we're going to die. Oh, come on, it ain't that big a deal. You know how the salesman is. It's no, that wasn't what God meant. What God really meant was you're going, you don't, there's some revelation and there's some understanding in this fruit that only God knows. And when you eat it, you're going to get that understanding. Oh, that piqued her interest. She's like, really? I can get smarter by eating this stuff? I can look better by eating this stuff? This stuff is better than the magazine cover that tells me if I buy this cream and rub it all over my face, I will lose 20 years of aging. Am I right? You read those magazines. You look at those magazines that tell you if you dress this way, you'll be successful. If you have this kind of car, these are the kind of girls that will follow you along. You know there was a man who sued Budweiser Company? Sued them for several million dollars for false advertising. And the reason he sued them was because when he went into a grocery store and bought a 12-pack of Budweiser so he could go to the beach, a bevy of beautiful bikini babes did not follow him to the beach. Now that's what the advertisement implied. That if you buy this stuff, this is what you're going to have at the beach. And that's what they tell you in the magazine. That's what they tell you in the ad. That's what they tell you in all this stuff. Because they're trying to play on what you see about yourself. You see the problem. Here, let me, do you understand why anybody gives you a gift? Here's the only reason any person ever gives you a gift. They give you a gift based on how they see you. I know that. That's why preachers, every pastor out there has these ties hanging in his, in his closet. They are ties he will never wear under any circumstances. He would come back from the dead if you put that ugly looking thing on him in his casket because somebody thought, man, this will look good on pastor. And so they bought this tie that is utterly wretched, but they gave it to him. And we do the same thing to other people. You understand what I'm saying? We give gifts to people based on how we see them. Why do you think Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Ghost? He sees us as redeemed. He sees us as his children. He sees us as overcomers. He sees us as joint heirs. He sees us as his brothers and sisters. He sees us like himself. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know we're gonna be like him because we're gonna see him as he is. And he already sees us that way. That's why he poured the Holy Ghost out. Because it's a gift. The problem is, Satan done had this girl's attention. And she's looking and thinking, okay, this is a good looking tree, the lust of the eye. It's good for food, the lust of the flesh. And it's gonna, Satan didn't tell her this. She came up with this by herself. It's gonna make me wise. The devil didn't tell her that. He said, now God knows some things that when you eat this fruit, you're, you're going to know what God knows. And she's thinking, well, that's going to make me wise. And so she buys it. She carries it home. She goes to Adam. and Adam's standing there one day. He's just pruning the bushes, doing whatever he happens to be doing. Here comes Eve. Oh, honey, I found the best deal ever in my life. Oh, honey, we got to do, do this. The man who sold me this said, when we eat this, it's going to make us smart like God. Now, I believe, bro, that if Adam had looked at her and said, now, honey, God said, don't touch it and don't eat it. I want you to throw it away, get rid of it right now. I don't care if you're losing money on it. You can take it back, get rid of it, do whatever. I believe right then nothing would have happened because Adam would have been obeying God. But he didn't say that. In fact, Eve just went ahead and took a bite. She bit. You know what happened whenever Eve ate the fruit? Eve took a bite. 
and she hands it to her husband. You know what happened during that time that she ate that bite? Nothing. Nothing. There was no revelation, no understanding, no wisdom, nothing happened. Nothing changed in her life. Us men spend a little too much time blaming our wives for the problems of our lives when the fact is Adam was the one in the transgression. She was the one in the deception. Therefore, the sin was not imputed to her. It was imputed to Adam and the sin came down through his seed, not through her. There's a reason Christ was born of a woman. Could not have the seed of humanity in him. Had to have the seed of God because the seed of man through Adam is corrupted because when Adam ate the fruit, That's when everything went bad. You know what kind of revelation Adam got out of this? This is really cool when Adam ate this fruit. There's a revelation came. It it was really an honest revelation. It was probably the greatest revelation to mankind up to that point. So Adam sees her. She eats it and she didn't fall over dead. Well, maybe, you know. So he tries. He takes a bite. You know what he says to himself? First thing comes out of his mind. We're naked. That's the only revelation this idiot got was we're naked. Seriously. What a revelation. Can you hear them thinking now, if I hadn't listened to that salesman, I wouldn't be in this condition? And isn't it just like God, right in the middle of you being stupid as you can possibly be, here comes the Lord. Amen? Adam hears the Lord walking in the garden, and Adam and Eve freak out. They go hiding behind a tree. They're wrapping fig leaves all around themselves. And here we are. Because at the point he ate that fruit, he was rejected of God. And he's almost cursed. And the end of the situation from eating the fruit is to be burned. This is the world we live in. This is the world you go to work in. This is the world where your neighbors are. This is the world. See, can you imagine this? Adam and Eve just doing their best to try to recover emotionally from what they had done. Kids start being born. And the, you know the first youth group in the history of mankind only had two brothers in it? and one of them murdered the other one. I'm just curious, has anybody in this youth group ever murdered anybody? Y'all are doing better than the first one, man. We're glad of that, ain't we, Pastor? We're glad of that. In the first youth group, two brothers, one of them murders the other. Can you imagine Adam's thoughts on this as he's burying his son? This is my fault. He's walking down going someplace, just checking some things out, and there's a dead tree. That's my fault. There's a dead squirrel. That's my fault. More kids are born, and time goes on, and next thing you know, we have murders and everything, all this stuff going on, and things got so bad, and Adam's thinking the whole time, every bit of this is my fault. You see, that's what sin does. Sin is the great condemner. Sin produces condemnation in us. Whenever we do something really stupid, just so you understand, your pastor knows. He doesn't know necessarily what you did. He just knows by your attitude when you come to church. Whenever you come to church, you kind of slip in. You maybe come in a little bit late, make sure he doesn't see you. And and you don't want to shake his hand that day. Or if you do shake his hand, you really don't look at him. Or you make this really goofy, uh, small talk kind of stuff that he's not used to and you're not used to. And then then he gets up and he preaches against sin. And you come to the altar and repent. And you cry and you ask God to forgive you again. See, all this works out. This is just in our nature. We can't avoid this. We can't avoid it because we live in this world. But, verse 9. Verse 9. Somebody want to read that? But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. I can promise you right now that that man sitting right there and that man sitting over here to his right 
absolutely are convinced you can be better than you are. They are totally convinced this church can be a powerhouse. They are totally convinced that we can turn this city upside down. They are totally persuaded and nothing is going to break the persuasion. We are persuaded better things of you. My wife and I live in Berlin, Germany. It's the atheist capital of Europe. The atheist capital of Europe. There's five million people in the greater Berlin area. The great majority of those do not believe in God at all. We do not carry church cards. We do not hand out flyers because if you walk up to a German and you hand them a church card or a church flyer, they put their hands behind their back and say, what is that? I'm inviting you to church. I'm not interested in that. And they will never talk to you again. Germans hate religion. Germans believe religion is the problem with humanity. Germans believe that if we could get rid of religion, all war would stop. There would never be another war if we got rid of religion. That's what they think. But they also believe that we're killing the planet. My wife and I were walking through a donut counter, walking in a, a mall in, in Potsdam. you mind if I put my hat on for just a minute? Okay. My, my wife and I were walking in, in, uh, in, in Potsdam, Germany. We actually have two churches over there. We have one downtown Berlin, and we have another one that we inherited over in Potsdam, just on the southwest corner of Berlin. And, and as we're walking through Berlin, I mean Potsdam that day going to the mall, we were going to get something to eat at the mall. You know, we going to go get some lunch. And as we're walking in, here's a donut kiosk. You see, that's where I, that's where I met the salesman. It's at that donut kiosk. But I met him a long time before I got to Potsdam, or that donut wouldn't have meant anything to me. You see, Krispy Kremes are kind of a friend of mine. We have this love-hate relationship. You understand what I'm saying? I love them, and they really hate me. I know they hate me because they keep sticking around and making my life miserable. They make me get bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier and all that other kind of stuff, so I know they don't like me. And I had seen an advertisement, an advertisement for Krispy Kreme donuts. We've been living in Germany for two years. I'd been two years away from a Krispy Kreme donut, and I saw an advertisement, and I really wanted a donut. And we walk into this mall, and here's a donut kiosk right in the middle of the aisle. Now, German donuts look like a work of art. It looks like Picasso made these things, man. I mean, they decorate them. They do all kinds of stuff. When we were in, in Bonn, Germany one year, back, I think, in 2015, we were in Bonn, Germany. And Sister Burgess from down in Spain had come up. She was translating for us in some, German, or in some Spanish classes. And we went to a McDonald's, Germany, McDonald's, Germany, McDonald's. Bond, Germany. We went to a McDonald's, walk in, we order a cup of, my wife got some hot chocolate, I got a cup of hot chocolate or something, Sister Burgess ordered a cup of coffee, and she and I ordered donut, or cookies, and they had these big cookies, about that big around they had in there, and so when they start serving this stuff, it's McDonald's for crying out loud, they serve it in glass cups with metal spoons and a glass plate to put my wife's donut on and a real fork, you know, this is Germany, presentation is really important in Germany. And then they come out, the manager, the manager comes out, walks over to our table and asks the question, who ordered this particular cookie? Sister Burgess said, that was me. She said, we cannot serve it. And Sister Burgess said, why not? And the lady made this comment, said, it's broken half. And Sister Burgess and myself looked at that lady at the same time and said, well, it tastes different. And the lady said, we cannot serve this because it's broken. Would you like to have a different cookie? Would not sell the goofy cookie because it's broken half. As if you're not going to break it to eat it, you know. That's just Germany. That's just the way they operate. So here I am looking at this donut kiosk. At these donuts that are not broken. They're really good looking. And my wife says to me, you know, they taste like cardboard. See, that's the problem with a German donut. It looks awesome, but it tastes like cardboard. If you ever go to Germany, don't eat the donuts. Just... 
She said, they taste like that. I said, yeah, I know, but I want one. She said, well, let's go get some food, and we'll come back and get one for desserts. All right, we'll do that. So we walked back over here to this girl. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this story. See, I'm persuaded better things. I'm persuaded better things. And these are things that accompany our salvation, folks. Even when we're talking about the sinful problems of this world, even when we're talking about how bad things can be, even when we're talking about how stupid saints can be, because saints can be really stupid sometimes. We do dumb things. Can I get an amen out of that? Even when that's happening, we're still persuaded better things of you. We're still totally convinced that your life can be so much better in Jesus than it will ever be out there. We're convinced of that. And as a result of that, when we got to Germany, when we first went over, moved over there permanently, I had bought a hat. I, I used to work cattle and ranches and stuff, and so I always wore a hat. You know, I like my own shade tree. And so I bought a hat in 2013, the first time we went to Germany, and I intended to sell it. Well, I couldn't sell it, so I gave it as a gift to our to our Brother Supan as a missionary, he, just to be nice to him. Mainly it was because I didn't want to have to wear that goofy thing home because being on an airplane with a hat is just a pain. And so I left it over there. Well, he ended up moving to Berlin, starting to work in Berlin. At the end of 2016, he took a church in Texas. He pastors a church in Texas now, and they called us and said, would you go to Berlin and take over the work? I said, sure, we'll go to Berlin. So off we went. There we are in Berlin, and there's my hat. And the first thing I think to myself, there's 84 million people in Germany. I would be an idiot to walk around a hat like that. So I didn't do it. I went and bought a fedora hat. You know what a fedora hat is? I bought a fedora. Had my long black dress coat like us preachers always wear, you know, looked real nice, and real sharp and all that kind of stuff, trying to blend into the, to the German culture over there. Had my shades on because I'd had LASIK surgery. My eyes were really light sensitive, so I had my shades on. And I'm standing in a subway station. Under that, in that subway station, that particular subway station is directly underneath the Berlin Wall. This was the dividing line between West Germany and East Germany. Our church where we rent rooms by the hour is in East Germany. It would have been under the Soviet Union. And so here I am standing underneath what used to be the Berlin Wall in a subway station that during the Soviet reign was literally brick shut so you couldn't even get in and out of it. And I'm waiting on somebody to step off the train and go to church because they don't know where the church is. I'm going to show them how to get there. And the train pulls up. And here's this dude, me, shades, fedora hat, long coat. I look like Dick Tracy. I'm standing here looking like Dick Tracy, minding my own business. And the train pulls up and stops the doors open. And people walk out and go, People coming down the stairs and they walk around me. I mean, I'm an island in a, in a sea of people. I'm like, what is the matter with these people, you know? And I try to talk to somebody. They just literally ball up and walk off. Like, what in the world's going on here, man? So I had to go ask somebody. So what's the deal? People scared. I know I'm not that ugly, but people are really scared of me. And, and somebody looked at me and said, man, you look just like the Gestapo. You see, from 1990 back, the Soviet Stasi, the secret police of the, of the Soviet system, dressed just like I was dressed would arrest you for nothing and you would disappear. During, the, during, the, during World War II, the Nazis, the Gestapo dressed just like I was dressed would arrest you for nothing and you would disappear. You know how hard it is to get somebody to come to church when they think they're going to die when they get there? <laughs> Real tough. So, my brain cells are not, I don't have a lot of brain cells and they're kind of far apart. It takes a long time for them to connect information. But all of a sudden, the information connected. Dude, you can't dress like this. So I went back to the house and I threw that hat up on the shelf. I took that coat off. I wadded it up. I stuck it in a box and taped it shut. The Antichrist can have that thing. It doesn't matter to me. But I don't like being outside without a shade tree. So I says to myself, I'm just going to give this a try. I cleaned my hat up. I stuck it on my head. And I headed out on the street of Berlin, Germany. 
Five million atheists. Not a single person in that entire city had a hat like this. I'm walking down the street. I'm walking along there. This dude walks up to me and says, where are you from? I said, Texas. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to teach you how to have hope for eternal life. He said, what does that mean? I said, let me tell you about Jesus. Fifteen minutes later, I walk away from that dude. I'm walking down the road. This dude walks up to me and he says, where are you from? Texas. What are you doing here? I'm here to teach you how to have hope for eternal life. What does that mean? Let me tell you about Jesus. And the light started getting a little bit brighter. By the time the third dude walked away from me after a 15-minute Bible study, when he asked me, what are you doing here? And what, why are you here? When he got away from me on that third Bible study, it dawned on me. I didn't buy that hat to sell in Germany. I bought that hat so God could send it over there ahead of time. So when I'm walking down the street, I attract attention. I stand out like a sore thumb. And when I walked up to that donut kiosk and that 25-year-old girl behind the counter said, you're from Texas, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, what are you doing here? I said, I pastor a church right here in Potsdam. And she looks at me and said, ah, I don't believe in God. I said, really, why not? God's a fantasy. I said, lady, you come way too late to convince me that God is a fantasy. You want me to leave it on? When Bishop speaks, you submit, folks. That lady behind that counter, she said, I don't believe in God. And I said, lady, you come way too late to convince me that God is a fantasy. I'm gonna tell you something. And this is what God wants you as a church to start thinking right now. This is what you've gotta get in your head. You've gotta get church outside of this building. You've gotta get church into your community. You've gotta get church into your Walmart. You've gotta get church into your stores. You've gotta get church on the job. You've gotta get church out there where everybody can see it. That girl looked at me and said, God's a fantasy. I said, lady, the second week my wife and I are in Berlin, we're walking across the bridge that goes over the Spree River right downtown Berlin. Right in front of me is the Pergamon Museum. Down the road is the Humboldt University. Right over here is the Berliner Dome, which is a gigantic old church. Behind me is all these shopping areas and fancy restaurants. We're in the middle of Culture Center, downtown Berlin, Germany, the atheist capital of Europe. And right in the top of that bridge is a lady playing an accordion with a cup sitting in front of her. That meant she was raising money. And God poked me and said, you go talk to her. I walked over there on the street, folks. Ma'am, what are you doing? She said, I'm crippled in my feet and I'm raising money to buy a special pair of shoes. I said, okay, I'm gonna give you five euros, but you're gonna let me pray for you. She said, okay. I said, do you mind if I lay my hand on your head? She said, no, go ahead. I laid my hand on her head. My wife and I prayed for her. Folks, we're speaking in tongues right there on the street. There are people walking past us in the atheist capital of Europe, right in the culture center of Berlin. We're laying hands on her. We're speaking in tongues. And the power of God's moving. 30 minutes later, that lady hollers, hey. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, my feet are healed. The pain is gone. You've got to stop letting this culture determine how you live for God. You gotta stop letting this city tell you you can't pray. You gotta get out of here and go find somebody and say, hey, let me pray for you. I believe God can heal you right now. That girl said, no, that's not possible. That's not, I said, lady, the second, to, I'm just telling you, we hadn't been in Berlin very long when Peter Burkowski come to church. 
He's my big brother. He's from, he's from Poland. He was raised in Poland, raised up in, a, in, a, in, a, in the Catholic church, didn't know anything about the apostolic doctrine. A little Colombian girl brought him to church and I asked at the end of service, anybody got anything you want prayed for? She, he didn't say nothing, but she pointed at him. I said, what's the deal, bro? He said, when I was a young man, I tore up my left knee. He said, I've got to have a surgery this week. I'm, I'm scheduled for surgery. I said, do you mind if I pray for you? He said, no, go ahead. This dude had never been in an apostolic church. He ain't never seen nothing like this. I said, do you mind if I lay my hand on your head? He said, no, go ahead. I laid my hands on his head and prayed. Nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened. We went on about our business. Next Sunday, Peter comes walking in the door. How you doing, bro? Doing fine. How's the knee? Funny thing. When I got to the doctor, they x-rayed it and said there's nothing wrong with it. I don't have to have a surgery. To this day, he has had zero problems with that leg. Oh, I forgot, that was in the church house. That was, that was in the building that we rent, which is, which is nothing but an old folks rent place where, where they have beer parties and they have drunk parties and they have weddings and, and they have, there's times you have to go in there and clean the puke off the seats just to have church in this place. That's the kind of place we rent just to have church. I understand that that's in the building, so it's supposed to happen in there. But what about the day me and my wife are walking down the street? Here's this guy sitting on the side of the road. He's a bum, he's a beggar, he's a homeless guy and he's got scabs all over his head and his knuckles. And the first thing I thought, Boy, that was a rough night in the bar. And God pokes me and said, you go talk to him. I went over there and I got down beside that dude and said, dude, I said, you look like we went through a meat grinder. Man, what's the deal? He said, I have epilepsy. And when I had my last fit, this is what I woke up to. This is what I looked like when I woke up. I said, man, can you get any help? He said, I don't know where I am. I said, well, do you know a phone number? He called somebody, used my phone. He said, I don't know who, who to call. He said, and there's people who bring me my medication, but they don't know where I am. I don't know where they are. He said, I don't know what to do. I said, I'm going to pray for you. I said, do you mind if I pray for you? He said, no, go ahead. Now, I didn't lay hands on this guy. I'm telling you, this dude was beat up. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. It's because there was no place to touch this guy. I mean, he was literally had scabs everywhere. And I said, I'm going to pray for you. He said, okay. I said, now, God's either going to heal your body right now, or he's going to do a miracle for you within 24 hours. He said, okay. We prayed. Power of God moved. We went on about our business. Next day, Pastor, we was walking to a different part of Berlin. As we're walking along, this dude hollers, hey! And I turn around and look, and it's him. He's doing this, waving me over. I got over there, and I said, what's up, bro? He said, two hours after you prayed for me yesterday, the people who bring me my medication drove up, got out and handed me my medicine. They didn't know where I was. That's not Possible. I said that's what happens when you get Jesus in the middle of impossible. Put me a picture up here, bro. Sis, whichever one you are back there. Person, human. Put me a picture up here. It doesn't matter. Just put a picture up. I am going to talk to you about what you can do. Not what Pastor Sledge can do. Not what Pastor, Pastor Grogan can do. Not what the bishop can do. What you as a saint of God can do. You see this lady right here got both hands stuck up in the air. She come to church in Oklahoma. She's backslid. She's been trying to come back to God. She made a lot of bad decisions. And one of the bad decisions she made was the man that she married who beat the dog out of her and tore her up so bad she could not pick her arms above her head. We were praying for her. She's holding her shoulders like this. She's hurting so bad. I'm praying for her. I'm trying to get this girl to pray through, but she's too distracted with the pain in her shoulders. I said, girl, what's the matter with your shoulders? She said, I married a man that beat me up. 
tore my shoulders up. I can't raise my arms up. I said, okay, first of all, we're going to get that dealt with. I laid hands on her and I prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. She left that service speaking in tongues with both hands raised up in the air, giving God all the glory because God can take a bad situation and turn it into something awesome. Next, 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 next. You see this dude over there on the right? That dude, that black dude got his arm up in there. He's swinging his arm around like this. This guy had been in a car wreck. This is Kingston, North Carolina. He'd been in a car wreck. And while he was in that car, he tore his body up. I mean, this dude was in bad shape. But as a result of the car wreck, he fell sometime later and tore his rotator cuff so bad in his right shoulder that he could not tie his tie. He could not put food in his mouth. He couldn't touch his ear. He couldn't fix his collar because he couldn't raise his right arm up. While I'm preaching, there's a lady off on that side of the church. She stands up, goes to the pastor's wife, said, pastor's wife, she said, I'm supposed to pray for that man. God's gonna heal him right now, but my husband's not here. Would you go with me? So she starts walking, both of them. They made it to the pulpit, and when they got just past the pulpit, the power of God hit both of them. They went to their knees. This man, who could not raise his right arm above his collarbone, took two steps away from the wall and went just like that. And he's testifying. I never touched this guy. I never touched this guy. I didn't pray for this guy. A saint prayed for this guy. He said, Pastor, when I got here, I could not move my arm like this, but God has healed me, and now I can move my arm. Next. Oh, this one's awesome. This one's awesome. I never touched this kid. He's 15 years old. This is New Brunswick, Canada. This kid's sitting right about where you are. He came into church with a cast on his foot, holding a pair of crutches. Came in on crutches. This is so cool. I'm preaching just like I'm preaching right now. And this dude, 21 years old, gets up off out of the youth group, walks over here, lays his hands on this kid's head. This kid stands up, they pray a little bit, and he sits back down. And this guy walks away. And so I get over in front of this kid. He's sitting just like that. I said, how's your foot? He goes, it's okay. I said, does it hurt? He said, no. I said, did it hurt when you came in? He said, yes. I said, stand up. He stood up, I said, how is it? And he goes, well, there's nothing wrong with it. They're cutting the cast off. He handed his crutches to his mama and he said, now I've got to explain to my teacher why I've been out of school for a week with a broken foot and my foot is not broken. It wasn't the missionary that prayed for this kid. It was a 21-year-old boy in the youth group laid hands on him and in the name of Jesus Christ, the power comes. One more, one more. Oh, this one's cool, this one's cool. You're gonna like this one. You see that dude in that suit in the middle? It wasn't being prayed for. You see that thing that's in front of him? It's called a walker. This guy, this is Queens, New York. This dude had been in a car wreck, broke three vertebrae in his lower back, had five herniated discs. This church in Queens is ginormous. I mean, it's big, long outfit. And he come in, he sat at the back. He finally gets up at altar call time. And he's moving to the altar like this with that walker. This dude can barely move, man. It took him almost 10 minutes to get up there, sis. He finally makes it to the front. Missionary never touched him, never prayed for him. Dude in the white shirt, he done bit. He had the faith. He believed God will work through him too. 
He got up and he walked over there. He lays his hands on this dude's head. And when he laid his hands on that dude's head, I started taking pictures. And that guy with three broken vertebrae and five herniated discs is doing this, standing up there being prayed for as God healed him completely. He said, water went through my body, then fire went through me. And when that fire went through, the pain was gone. He folded his walker, headed out of the church, said, I have been healed. When a church, when a church body bites and starts doing what Jesus called you to do. Jesus didn't call you to be a preacher. He didn't call you to be a pastor. He didn't call you to be an evangelist. But there is no reason why you can't operate in faith and lay hands on somebody and see them healed. One more. The lady in blue been in church in Washington, D.C. for 12 years, never received the Holy Ghost. Never received the Holy Ghost. While she's praying, this old timer comes up. It's all Spanish work, man. They all speak in Spanish. I can't understand none of them. This old man comes up and he kneels down. He's praying. He's not a young guy. He's pretty old. He's over here praying. Got both hands raised up in the air. I walked over to him, laid hands on him, prayed a little bit. Power God moved. Went on about my business. You see that girl in the flowery shirt or the flowery dress? That's Sister Jessica Sabatica. She doesn't go to this church. We had stayed at their house for three or four days and her family wanted to come be in church with us so they drove up to Washington, D.C. from Virginia to be in church with us that night and she's standing back there watching tears coming down of her eyes. She's not doing anything. She ain't never done nothing like this in her life. I made a walk around. I bumped her. I said, sis, you want to be involved in this? She said, yes. I said, you come with me. And so she walked up there. I said, you lay your hand on this lady's head and you pray in the name of Jesus. As soon as Sister Sabatica touched that woman, that woman broke out speaking in tongues. God filled her with the Holy Ghost right there not because the missionary prayed not because the pastor prayed but because the saint said I believe what Jesus says is right I'm persuaded better things than what we've got right now I believe it can be better I'm going to close up I'm going to close up right here can you, can you put up a verse of script up there real fast for me Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. We doing okay, Bishop? Watch this. Then he calls his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over every devil and to cure every disease. What got me into the apostolic doctrine is I kept asking the question, why do we go to churches and we're praying for people and nothing is happening? Why aren't we praying and people being healed like they did in the book of Acts? Why ain't that changing? What's different now? And I met the church where the power of God is in the name of Jesus Christ. And we have the power and the authority over all devils and to cure every disease. I know some of you think that this is just the 12. You know, this is like... John and Peter and Matthew and all them guys. Go to chapter 10, verse one though. Chapter 10, verse one. Watch this. Now Jesus had sent these 12 out to go into different places and preach. After they left, after they're gone and doing their thing, Jesus takes 70 more dudes. You have any idea who those 70 are? Nobody else does either because they're not listed. But I'm gonna tell you who they are. They were the 70 people who followed the 12 to Jesus. They were the 70 people who were just common saints. They didn't have anything else to offer. They just followed these 12 around because they were following Jesus and tremendous things were happening. And Jesus takes them and sends them out two by two into every city and place where he himself is gonna go. 
Okay, you listen to me. Probably everybody in this room knows somebody. You've invited them to church 10,000 times and they're not coming. They keep giving you that lame, dumb answer. Oh, I'll think about it or maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. Maybe, maybe when I feel better, I don't feel good enough to go to church today. I want you to stop putting them on Sunday morning's prayer list. Stop telling them we'll put you on the prayer list and pastor will be sure and pray for you. Stop doing that. Whenever they say that to you, look them square in the eye. You mind if I pray for you right now? I believe God will do a miracle in your body right now. I believe God will heal you because God sent me to a place that he himself wants to come. Jesus is waiting on you to get there. When you get there, he will show up. Hang on, we're up against the wall real, real fast, real fast. My wife and I were in Homeland Grocery Store, downtown Henrietta, Oklahoma. Downtown Henrietta, Oklahoma, we're in the Homeland Grocery Store. I'm listening, just minding my old business. I overhear the manager lady talking to another lady, and the manager lady says, my mother has stage four breast cancer. Said the doctors gave her no hope. I love those kind of situations. They got through talking, and God tells me, you go pray for her right now. I'm going to heal her mother right now. Okay, why not? God can do it. I walked over to that lady when they got through talking. I said, ma'am, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I said, I'm sorry. I usually don't listen in on conversation, but I heard you say your mother has stage four breast cancer. She said, yes. Pulls her phone out, showing me all these x-rays and scans. I said, I don't need to see that. I said, I'm not interested in that. What I'm here to tell you is God just told me to pray right now and God's gonna heal your mother right now. And she goes, okay. I said, do you mind if I pray for you? She said, yeah. I said, do you mind if I lay my hand on your head? She goes, no. She wasn't used to this, folks. She wasn't used to it. But I prayed for her. I laid my hand on her head nice and easy like. We started praying. We're speaking in tongues right there in the grocery store. Trusting in the power of God in the grocery store. Next morning, I text Carly. Carly, how's your mama? She texted back. She said, funny thing. My son stayed with her last night. Said he woke up this morning and Granny told him, the pain is gone, the knots are gone, everything's back to its normal size. Praying in a grocery store in the name of Jesus Christ, the power of God began to move. Luke chapter 10, verse nine. Luke chapter 10, verse nine. This is where I'm closing. Everybody stand. Everybody stand. This is where I'm closing. Luke chapter 10, verse nine. When you get to that city or place that Jesus is sending you to, heal the sick that are there. That's the first thing Jesus told those 70. You go heal the sick and then tell them the kingdom of God is real close. You see, you've been inviting these people to church. You've been talking to them. There's people you meet all along the way and you keep talking to them and they keep telling you they're not interested. Stop inviting them to church and start asking them, may I pray for you? May I lay my hands on you right now? I believe God will do a miracle in your life right now. Is there anybody in this place who knows somebody that you want to go pray for? And before, come on, sis, before this day is over, come on up here, come on up here, sis. I'm not talking about you being prayed for right now. I'm talking about you going and praying for somebody else now. You understand? Anybody? Anybody know that person? Come on, bro. 
You want to step out in faith and you believe God will answer this prayer just like he does for us? Because it's not about whether or not you're a missionary. It's not about whether or not you're a pastor. It's whether or not you believe that Jesus is God. And if you believe that Jesus is God, you can lay hands on the sick. The Bible says, Jesus said it, these signs shall follow them that believe. And one of those signs is you're going to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You see, this is not going to be your normal altar call. This is not going to be an altar call where you come up here and feel good about God and get some mushy-cushy, somebody pray through to the Holy Ghost. That'll be cool if you do. God bless you. This is the deal where you're coming up here and you're making a commitment to Jesus. You're going to make a commitment right now. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to go find somebody to pray for him. My wife and I were with the Cortezes down in San Diego. We went to park, going to some restaurant. We get out and here's a lady sitting in a wheelchair. I don't know who this lady was. I haven't been back part of San Diego since. Doesn't matter to me. I got out, I looked at her and said, sis, what happened? She said, I was in a car wreck. She said, I'm tore up. I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And she goes, well, God's already done miracles in my life. I'm a lot better than I was. I said, it doesn't matter. Do you mind if I pray for you? I believe God will do more than that. She said, I guess. I said, do you mind if I lay my hand on your head? She kind of hesitated. I said, just let me hold your hand then. She kind of did, and when, I put, when she put her hand in mine, I went to close my hand around her, she kind of pulled back a little bit, but when I started praying in Jesus' name, she gripped a hold of me, and she would not let go as the power of God began to move in her body, and when I walked away, she follows me down the road, said, hey, she said, you scare me to death. I said, what's the deal? She said, come here, and I walked over. She said, listen to my music. Folks, if you want to make a connection with the lost, go pray for them. Go pray for them. Jesus sent his disciples out to pray. He didn't send his disciples out just to look good in society. I got any commitments in here tonight, this morning? Come on up here. Come to this altar. If you want to commit yourself to God, say, okay, I'm going to go pray for somebody. I'm going to go find somebody to pray for right now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Turn around and pray for somebody right now. Turn around and pray for somebody right now. Practice. Practice. Lay your hand right there. I want you to pray right now that God would do a miracle in her life. Don't worry about what your mama's going through. You pray for this lady right now in the name of Jesus. Pray right now in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Come on, you can pray for somebody. You can pray for somebody.